Good singing. Good morning, church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, page 853. The Bible's provided for you in the pew. We have been studying as a church through the minor prophets, and we left off in the middle of Hosea. And uh, with a passage that refers to the resurrection of Christ. So our pivot to the gospel of Mark for Palm Sunday and Easter is not disconnected as the whole Bible is connected in Jesus anyway. And I chose to turn to Mark for Palm Sunday last week and Easter this week because I think that the gospel of Mark is particularly applicable to where we are as a congregation and to where we are as Memphians especially. I explained last week that each gospel can be characterized by an overriding theme that appears again and again, even though there's a lot of parallels among the gospels. Each one has become known by its special characteristic. For instance, Luke is often called the gospel of women because of Jesus' particular attention, or Luke makes that special focus of Jesus' attention to women who were otherwise overlooked. Gospel of John said it was written that you might believe the gospel for belief, for evangelism. Gospel of Matthew, the gospel of the Jews sometimes called because he notes the many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I don't know of a a handle or a nickname or a hashtag for Mark. I haven't seen that in scholarship particularly, but, but I would call it the gospel of fear or the gospel for the fearful, good news for those who are afraid. Because Mark talks a lot about fear. I've counted at least 17 times. I'm sure there are more. 17 times when Mark describes people as afraid, 17 times in 16 chapters, and many mentions within these last eight verses. I think this is a gospel for us because we are afraid. We're afraid at this this time in history. We're afraid in our city. We're afraid as a nation. We're afraid as a world. And Mark writes to the fearful, good news for the fearful. Now, not many sermons on Easter are based on Mark chapter 16 because there are only eight verses. And then there is this this interesting insertion that you find at the top of just above verse 9 in your Bibles. It reads something like this, some of the earliest manuscripts or the most reliable and oldest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Now, to put your minds at ease that this introduces no doubt to us as to the the certainty, the reliability of God's word as infallible and inerrant is just the opposite. You know, the, the, the manuscripts that we have from which we derive a critical edition of the New Testament is the most reliable manuscript has the most reliable manuscript evidence of any ancient book. 
We have 15,000 manuscripts, Greek and cognate languages, from which to discern a single authoritative copy. All of the, all of the, the differences could be placed on one eight and a half by 11 inch page. It's a miracle. It's, a, it's amazing. Even for great works like Plato and Aristotle, there are only seven to ten manuscripts available to compare and contrast. And then we have the oldest and most reliable ones, as this note says to us, because obviously the the more closely that that copy is dated to the original, the greater chance it has for accuracy. And and for Plato and Aristotle's works, the, the earliest copies we have are 1,200 to 1,400 years after Plato and Aristotle wrote what they did. We have manuscripts that are dated within 100 years of the original. One manuscript dated within 35 years of the time that John wrote. So it is with great certainty we can say Mark ended his gospel here at verse 8. But Why? Why this strange, curt ending? I think it's to make a powerful point to us, to us especially who are afraid. Let me share it with you beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let the word of our God stand forever. Let us pray. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful, powerful things in this portion of your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and God's people said together, amen. Makes a big difference, doesn't it, the way you react to a story as it's being told when you know it has a happy ending, when it has a good ending, when things are going to turn out okay. When I was about four years old, I was riding in the front seat of my dad's pickup truck with my mom and dad. And it was in those wonderful days when you could career down the highway, down a two-lane highway with no speed limit, 75, 80 miles an hour, and no seat belts. And there I was, I was tired, so I stretched out, put my legs over my mom's lap, put my head on my dad's leg, 
And then something startled me. I woke up, my head hit the gear shift, threw it into reverse, locked up the transmission, locked up the wheels. We were skidding along the road. It was wet pavement. And then we took flight. We were on an elevated part of the highway. We went airborne. And I thought, this is where we die. Then we landed. I don't remember anything after that, but what happened was that the rain-soaked field that we landed, or rain-soaked front yard, was soft and giving. And so the, the car didn't flip or tumble. It came to rest in this mud. Now, it stopped suddenly. We banged our heads against the against the dashboard. We all were knocked out for a short time, but there was no bloodletting except for my a little cut on my mother's leg. Good Samaritans who owned that that house took us in and and uh, they were patching up my helping my dad in one part of the house and my mom was on a sofa with a ice pack on her head and her feet propped up and I was the last one to wake up. I was on a little chair, little little love seat in the middle of the of the living room and when I woke up I thought in my four year old brain this must be heaven. I was disappointed because of the 1950s decor. I thought we should have modernized by now, gotten into the 60s. But, uh, and then I looked at my mom and I asked, is she dead? And she popped her eyes open and the loving mother of the home came and said, no, she's not. My dad came around the corner and we were alive. Now, how can we chuckle at a story like that? Because we know the ending. We know I didn't die. We know I wasn't in heaven with 1950s decor. We know the story had a good ending. I think that's the strategy that Mark has here. He ends the story in such a way as to provoke our faith, a faithful response, to goad us into a response of hope. Now, let me show you how I get there. The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 to 6 is that, is that God surprised these people by doing the unimaginable, which he always does. How can you be provoked to counterintuitive faith? How can you be provoked to defiant hope? When you are met with a God who does the unimaginable. That's what these, these women face. We can't be too hard on them. They didn't even have a category by which to process resurrection. When they saw the empty tomb, their minds went in any number of directions, but not in any way could they have gone to resurrection. It, it, was, it was not a concept that anybody could have believed in the Greco-Roman world. There was a saying in the old world that, uh, yeah, that'll happen when the dead rise again. It was like saying uh, that'll happen when hell freezes over. That'll happen when pigs fly. But it was meaning it will never happen. It's impossible. There's a famous epitaph on headstones in the, in the Greek world that was so common, it became so common, it later was just put on a headstone with the initials. I was, I was not. I will 
never be, and I don't care. I was, I was not, I will never be, and I don't care. There was no, no idea that they could come back to life. That is, they could, that resurrection meaning that someone spontaneously comes to life never to die again. It was not even a concept in the Jewish world. Yes, God prophesied it. There are prophecies like we studied in Hosea, but they didn't get it. They didn't catch it. Now, they had this idea. They had this, this idea was common and passed on from generation to generation and even into Second Temple Judaism, even up into the day of Jesus, that someday the Jewish people would be raised again. The, the Jewish state would be reconstituted and the Jewish people would be resurrected, never to die again. But there was no concept, no concept that a prophet, that a, that a Messiah, that, a, that Moses or Isaac or Abraham or Jacob or Elijah would be, come to life before the end of the world, never to die again. They were not expecting it. It was not a thought that had entered into their minds. We can't be hard on these women when they came to this tomb. They saw the stone rolled away. How, who could have done that? There's an empty tomb. How can the body be gone? Somebody must have stolen and so forth. And then there's this angel, presumably, who says to him, why are you, why are you looking for Jesus? Why are you so afraid? He's alive. They could not compute. So they fled. They didn't say anything to anyone. They were trembling with fear. Why this ending? Why an ending like this? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid, period. Now, Mark knew that his people, the people to whom he was writing, had the other gospels, Matthew and Luke and John, and he, they had filled in the other gaps of what happened, the appearances of Jesus to Thomas and to, and to the disciples and to the women and to, and, and to 500 others. They had all of that. Mark knew that. He just ends here with fear. They were afraid. It seems to me he ends here in order to provoke a, a, a response of faith. It, it, it's, it seems like it's something like this. I was reading, you know, the, the, my, when my children were small, the tradition was that I would read a story to them every night before they went to bed. And as they got older, the stories had to get longer. And, uh, one, and they, they got into James Harriet at some point, you know, the veterinarian that, that had all the, has all the interesting stories, all creatures, great and small and so forth, in, in Yorkshire, England. And those stories were long. I love those stories, but they were long, especially when you're tired. And I was really tired one night, and they said, Daddy, Daddy, please read us a James Harriet story. I said, no, let's try Goodnight Moon, or let's try uh, the digging his dog or something. No, no, James Harriet. So I thought I, I got, I've got one on them. I know there's a story in here that I have not read to them before. I will read it, alter the ending and we'll be finished in half the time. It was a story about a cat at a dairy farm and there's a beloved cat and the, and the family loved the cat. The cat got sick. The cat and the, and the cat ran away, and uh, they couldn't find the cat. And I said, and the cat died, the end. 
And my, my children protest. No, Daddy, that's not the way that story ends. Mama read us that story. We know how it ends. The cat goes to the neighbor's farm. They nurse it back to hell. Mr. Harriet brings it back to the family. They were happy. They lived everywhere. Now, you read that story the way it's supposed to be read. You read that story to the end. I had to read the whole story. I think that's what Jesus, what Mark is doing here. Addressing people's fears. And he says, the women didn't say anything to anyone. They were afraid. The end. And the people in the congregation must have said, no, that is not the way that story ends. That's not all there was. We are still telling that story. We know that Jesus was raised to life. We know they saw him again. He was seen by 500 people. That's the rest of the story. It provokes, it goads into a faithful response. He's the God of the unimaginable. What is that fear? What is that need that you have in your heart, the burden on your conscience today that you think it is impossible? It's impossible that God should answer that need. Why? Because you can't imagine it. God loves those situations. So this is what you do. You, you claim a promise because God is not just one who does the unimaginable. Christ is the one who fulfills his promises. You see that allusion tucked in here at verse seven, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What is that? That burden, that need, that fear, that disappointment that you cannot imagine how it is going to be, how it is going to be met. Claim a promise of scripture. It doesn't even have to be spoken of as a promise. It it, it may not be one that anybody else recognizes. As you're reading your Bible and you and the, the Holy Spirit says, this is for you. You claim that. And in doing so, you're holding on to Jesus in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen, and he fulfills them. And where do I get that in this verse? Because, because, you know, in chapter 14, Jesus had predicted that this would happen. He had prophesied that this would happen. He said, they're going to kill me, but the Son of Man will rise again on the third day, and I will meet you in Galilee. The only thing, two things they would have understood out of those words were kill and Galilee. None of the rest. He may as well have been speaking Martian. They will, they will kill him. He will rise again and meet us in the flesh. It's impossible. Until this angel told them the tomb is empty here because he's not among the dead anymore. He's among the living. And he is, he is coming for you in Galilee. He is going there to meet you. Because he's the one who fulfills his promises. Now you say, I'm not worthy for him to fulfill my promises. Do you think these disciples were? Go tell the disciples. Why did they have to go tell the disciples? Because the disciples had run away in fear. Only the women were left. Go tell the disciples who are cowering behind closed doors. 
and tell Peter. Why Peter? Because just a few chapters earlier, Peter said, I don't care if everybody else forsakes you and runs away from you. I got your back. I'll be with you no matter what. And within a few days, he is cursing and saying, I never knew him. He betrays him. Go tell those disciples. Go tell that coward Peter who is, who is, who is, who is being tormented by the shame of his conscience, tell him to meet me in Galilee because I have a job for them. He fulfills his promises to the unworthy, to the undeserving, just as he did these disciples. And he does it in a personalized way. He tells them to go to Galilee because that's where they first met him. And they, and they, 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 they knew that that was a place, a special place they shared together. Now he's going to give them a commission there, but he says, meet me there because when they got there, they knew if this was true, if this was true, only Jesus would know where to meet them. Go meet him there. And they did. I was in someone's home recently and they had a verse on their, on their, above their sink. It's a, it's a family who's suffered more than any family I have ever known. There's a little verse there. It was, it was kind of faded. It was framed. And, and it says, God says, return to your people and he will make you prosperous. I thought... You couldn't find that on Pinterest. Who would frame a verse like that? Go to your people and your relatives and I will make you prosper. And then they had a, a sticky note on it. Jacob's prayer. As Jacob was listening to the promises of God. And then I remembered their life and I thought that fits perfectly. And, and I can imagine as they were reading their Bibles, they would, no one else would have said, now here's a promise I think is appropriate for you. But they, reading the Bible with the Holy Spirit, found a promise that was personalized to them. It was no, it was, it could not have been more personal had they said, I want you to go meet me at your address. And as God has fulfilled it, they knew that promise was for them. That's what these disciples are experiencing. That's what you will experience. Trusting your burden to the Lord. He personalizes promises for you. But he doesn't leave you there. He has a job for you to do. He commissioned these disciples. He said, go to Galilee. And we know from the other uh, uh, gospels, especially Matthew, that in Galilee, they received the great commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. These people in verse eight are described in verse eight as having gone out, fled from the tomb, trembling and astonished, fight, flight, freeze. All of them in the, all of those reactions to trauma in that little verse they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. 
because they saw him in Galilee, when they saw him in Galilee, when they touched him, as Brad was describing, when they touched his hands and his, his side, when they saw the scars on his forehead and they saw he was alive, the unimaginable had happened. He fulfilled the promises that he had made. Then what happened to them? They were transformed. It, it wasn't that they were never afraid again, but they leaned into their fears. They went forward in courage. They went to the ends of the earth, even though it cost them their lives, and they preached the gospel. No one could intimidate them out of it. That news is so powerful. It can transform us, no matter how afraid, ashamed, what failures we viewed ourselves to be before. I, th- I think something probably could, or could have happened, something like this. These people could have come to say, Pastor Mark, I am, we are afraid. The government is oppressing us. Taxes continue to increase. The persecution increases. Uh, uh, Peter has been crucified. Uh, our, our, the, the apostles are being hunted down. They're telling us they're going to wipe us out. And uh, we are afraid. Do you have a word for us? And maybe Pastor Mark began his sermon back in chapter one of this book. And he said, do you know, he taught to the Pharisees and when the Pharisees heard him teach, they were afraid and maybe they chuckled. And then they brought uh, Jairus's daughter was had died and uh, they were afraid. What were they going to do? And maybe they chuckled because they knew he's going to raise them from the dead. Or they encountered the Gadarene demoniac. He was clothed in his right mind. They were afraid. They probably chuckled, said, oh boy, the things we were afraid of in those days. And he continues on till he gets to this point. And then he says, and they all ran out of the tomb. They fled. They were trembling. They were in astonishment. It seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And the people may have laughed and said, I can't believe we were afraid. And Mark said, that's the end. And they would have said, no, that's not the end. That's not the end. Jesus appeared to them. They felt his wounds. It transformed them. And they, we have told his story to the ends of the earth. That story is so powerful. It could be told in pictures. I saw a movie last week I'd never seen before. Amistad, not for little eyes. It's a true story based on a tragic event. A slave ship from Spain went to Sierra Leone, captured a, a, a large number of Africans to send them as slaves to Cuba. A brave man named Cinque broke his chains and let others loose and they mutinied, took over the ship and they demanded that the Spanish captain take them back to their freedom in Sierra Leone. And he lied to them and instead sailed to the northeast shore of the United States, to America. They were taken prisoner, said they would never have their freedom again. But someone took up their case and started arguing and argued it to a state court and ultimately to the Supreme Court. I won't ruin the ending, but John Quincy Adams himself argued their case for freedom before the Supreme Court of the United States. Awaiting the verdict the next day at the state level, 
Sinke, the one who had broken the chains of the others, saw his friend Yamba across the room reading a Bible. He couldn't read it. It was in English. It wasn't in his language. But he was looking at the pictures, and he'd been looking at the pictures over and over again. And Sinke mocked him and said, why are you looking at that book? Nobody's watching you. I'm the only one who sees you. He said, I'm beginning to understand. I'm beginning to understand what this is about. Come look at it with me. He shows him a picture summarizing everything that the Israelites had gone through in the Old Testament as lions tearing them, tearing them apart. He said, look, these people suffered worse even than we did. He turns a picture to the New Testament. He sees the baby Jesus in the manger. And he, he says, but when this baby was born, everything changed. Shows a picture of him on a donkey, his head, head haloed by the sun. Look, the sun followed him everywhere he went. And everywhere he went, look what he did. He turns page after page. Here he, he made people who were sick well. Look, he, he took up for these outcast women. Look, mobs of children swarmed him. And he welcomed them into his arms. He was a good man. And then he turned the page and he said, but they arrested him. and took him a prisoner. Sinke says, well, he must have been a bad man. He must have done something wrong. He said, did we do anything wrong? He's taken us prisoner. Not only did they take him prisoner, he says, they killed him. Let me show you how they killed him. He turns to the picture of the cross. He makes a sign of it. He doesn't know what to call it. He says, they put him on that. And then they, then another picture, they show friends taking him off the cross and he starts to cry Sinke tells his friend Yamba don't 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 cry it's just a made-up story no he said this is not the end they took him off the that thing and they wrapped him in a sheet like we do our own they put him in a tomb and he turns the page but he left the tomb And he turns the page and there he is alive. He became alive again. And then look at this. And he shows him ascending to heaven. He went to that place. He went to a place that is, look, it's very happy. Look how happy he is. That's where we're going to go if they kill us. I don't think it's so bad. I don't think it's so bad. How can someone with nothing more than pictures stare in the eyes of death and fear and say, I don't think it's so bad only because of an empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ who does the unimaginable, keeps his promises and gives us work to do. I have to confess to you something. Last week I told my Colleagues, to my embarrassment, I said to my colleagues, I may have even prayed about it as we were preparing for worship. I said, I long for a normal Sunday. Now, I meant by that, I, I, I long for a Sunday when we can gather and there hasn't been something in our national news tearing us apart as a country, pitting us against one another a tragedy in our congregation or a tragedy among sisters and brothers. I long for a normal Sunday. I meant by that that we could just come together and worship and forget our problems and so forth. I'm sorry I said that. 
because week after week after week over the last number of years, we have gathered in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a country torn apart, the tragic loss of our friends, tragic loss of our friends in another city, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. We have gathered and worshiped And I've seen miracles in this congregation. Just this week, I saw a resurrection of faith. as someone I never could have believed. God did the unimaginable. Seen marriages come together. People reconciled. People come to faith. People join the church. People who should be angry at God and lifting their fists, raising their hands in worship. I have seen it because of the worship of a living Christ who meets with us every week and transforms us over the course of time. I don't ever want another normal Sunday. I want to experience what we have experienced here, what these disciples experienced on the very first Sunday. All of our doubts driven away because we are forced to lift up our heads and our faces and see a Christ who is alive and says, I will be with you to the end of the age. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let us not fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief, help those listening to us who are not here, who refuse to believe, conquer them with the unimaginable, help those who are downcast, those who are afraid those traumatized, those shamed, those angry, paralyzed by their bitterness, set them free today. Set them free. Help us, Lord, by the power of a resurrected Christ to stare all our fears, even the fear of death, in the face and say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.